Hi, you're listening to Cool Story with Brie and Bridie. This week, one of the best books I have ever read. Bridie and I share our career advice from the other side of turning 30. And when is it okay for a politician to break their promise? I'm Brie. And I'm Bridie. So, we've had a great idea. Actually, we cannot take credit for this idea. You've had a great idea. We have been getting a few messages on various platforms, as well as like a couple of listener run-ins of people asking for a Facebook group, a cool story Facebook group. People want to be able to talk to each other as well as just to us. I mean, we get your amazing Instagram DMs and they are funny and they are touching and they are lovely and we see the comments, but sometimes we just get all of these DMs and all of these messages and people are saying such similar things or people are disagreeing and we have just been feeling for a while like, oh, wouldn't it be amazing if all of our amazing listeners could talk to each other as well as just having this single channel of communication between you and us. And then we thought, we don't think that we're the people to run it. We thought that we would throw it open to everyone and see how many people are interested and if there's people out there who want to moderate this, help us set it up and then moderate it, you can get in touch with us and then we can go from there and see what we can create. We've got an email. Get your pen ready. It's an annoyingly long email, I know. But we'll also put the email address in the show notes. It is coolstorybreebridey, or one word, at gmail.com. That's not that bad. <laughs> oh, it's a mouse. Yeah, yeah, it's It's a the same as our Instagram handle, at coolstorybreebridey. So email us, like get in touch with us, and we might connect a few people or work out how this could work. But we were so excited to think of how this could end up looking and to have you all in one place instead of just in our DMs with us responding individually. I think it could be the beginning of something very beautiful and very funny. Email us, get in touch, and let's see what magic we can create. Woohoo. Hey, Bree. Hi, Bridie. Hi, Hi, Sam. (laughs) Our producer in the corner, whose laugh you are absolutely going to hear throughout this episode. What did you do this week? Did your son come home? Oh, Hamish, um, my six-year-old who had left home and told me he wasn't coming back when he went to stay with my mum. Yeah, he came home so, so, so reluctantly. My brother was driving him to the airport and rang me to ask me a question about checking because it's a complicated checking with an unaccompanied minor. And um, Hamish heard me over the car and from the back seat, he heard me over the car speakers and from the back seat he yelled out, I don't want to do this, (laughs) mum. And it was a full, I'm coming home, but I'm not happy about it. (laughs) But he was all right once he came back and then he arrived back and so he had the double whammy of thinking that he had left home but then been returned home and then going back to school after the most amazing summer ever and my aunt sends the boys cards in the mail throughout the year which is so cool like you know to get the thrill of mail oh I remember that when I was a kid yeah yeah yeah. and it's fully how they've realized how the mail works because they don't even really see me and Matt get mail anymore. Right? Like we get packages but not letters or cards. Like no one sends birthday cards really. Anyway, my aunt sends them both cards. They get excited and open them. And she sent them cards and Hamish has said, how exciting you're about to start year one and you'll be back to school soon. And he was reading it and threw the card across the room and said, I hate that card. <laughs> <laughs> so then we had to deal with Yes, him going back to school. And to soften the blow, I don't know why we did this, but to soften the blow, we explained to him what boarding school is. (laughs) We're like, it could be worse. You could be sleeping there. (laughs) I feel like I'm playing along at home watching your children become or like move into their personalities. Yeah, In totally. a way that's really exciting and rewarding. You see it more and more each year. Like you, you think when they're babies, you know, at six weeks, you're like, oh, their personality is coming through, which I think it is in some ways. But it is amazing each year how much more it develops and how much it surprises you as well. And you're like, oh, this is the person you're becoming. Yeah. Also, you just reminded me then of when I was a kid and I always wanted to run when I got home from school and check the mailbox because it was so exciting. And my parents would always be like, oh, make sure there's nothing for me. And I always like couldn't fathom how they wouldn't want mail. And now that I only get bills in the mail, I'm like, oh, hard relate. Yeah. The heart drop when you're like, it's rates. 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, the water bills here. <laughs> what have you been up to? Uh, well, I leave on at 6am on Wednesday morning for my grand Egypt adventure. So I'm just in like super excited, but kind of butterflies packing prep mode. But also <laughs> I have a small funny thing to share. So all of my tour dates for the work went online a couple of days ago. And our dear friend Rick Morton is going to be doing my in conversation in Brisbane, which I knew. Uh, and I knew that the event would be at the powerhouse, which for anyone who's listening, if you grow up in Brisbane, like the powerhouse is such a gig venue. Or I remember I remember for me I was like, oh one day if I'm really big and like famous I'll like return it's an amazing venue powerhouse yeah all the coolest shows I went to when I lived in Brisbane that were at the powerhouse yeah so I'm really excited but then I um was just scrolling through to get the link to like send to my Brisbane sort of friends and family and I found this which I did not know was happening Purchase a VIP ticket for an exclusive pre-show meet and greet with Bree Lee. Front row seating, drink on arrival, and a signed copy. <laughs> you didn't know you were doing meet I and greets? I was doing champagne meet and greets and, like, the thought of Rick Morton and I's being an attraction. <laughs> the only other person I've known to do meet and greets is Taylor Swift. <laughs> I know. And then I felt like such a wanker for sending people the link. To it's your like friends. My friends and family. Hey, mom, if you want to catch up with me when I'm in Brisbane, <laughs> you can pay a bit extra and I'll chat to you before the show. <laughs> oh, God. I just, yeah. Well, while you're, you're at the powerhouse, the other funny thing that happened to me this week is I get to start talking about this month all these great books that I read last year. Mm that are now coming out now and I read them to blurb them and I don't actually blurb books that often because it's so much work and there's the risk that I might not like it and, you know, I just don't have time. So I mostly say no, but I ended up saying in really quick succession yes to three books last year and they've all started to come out and I am never, ever the front cover blurb. It, and and Rick, Rick and I actually had a running joke. Well, I had a running joke with Rick that I knew that he loved. Was it, there was a point a couple of years ago or like three years ago where we would both get asked to blurb the same books and they would always put his quote on the front cover and mine on the back. And there was one book my sister sent me that I blurbed. I was like, wow, I'm on the front of that book. This is, that's the first blurb I've ever been on the front of. And it was the back cover. <laughs> But I don't think I've ever been on the back cover. Usually I'm on the inside. Anyway, I know I'm not one of the front cover blurbs for the work, so it's fine. You don't have to break it to me. I took note when I saw the cover post. I just need to say for the record, I don't get to choose. (laughs) No, it's fine. But one of the books that's coming out that I – it's coming out this month. I am so, so excited for – it was one of the best books that I read last year called Thanks for Having Me by Emma Dara. And it's a debut, which is one of the reasons I said yes, because I am more inclined to say yes to debuts. Same. You know, yeah, yeah, to support. You know, you say yes to your mate always can be a bit awkward, but I would just pretend to them that I'm a busy mum and didn't get to finish the book <laughs> if I didn't like it. I hope no one who I've said that to is, is listening. <laughs> anyway, Emma Dara, she's a debut author and it's on the Joan imprint you know, oh, that yeah, Nikia yeah, yeah, Louie is doing. And yeah. it's, it's, I think, the first fiction there. And it is incredibly difficult thing to pull off, a series of short stories that are all interconnected. So it's basically a novel as well. That's playing on hard mode. Oh, isn't it? Like, yeah. And she is phenomenal. And the book is essentially the, all of the short stories are set around three women who are a mum, her daughter, and that daughter's daughter. So all three of those generations is like the central character in a few different stories and they go back in time as well which is also playing on hard mode like an incredibly difficult thing to pull off and that can just make something like overwrought or you can like see the work and it's trying too hard or it takes you out of the book or it just feels like an English assignment yeah like it's too kind of she's amazing she's phenomenal and what she and the things she writes about the way that she writes about maternal ambivalence 
I just blew me away. I was so struck by because that is also another really difficult thing to pull off. And someone who did it really well was Alana Ferrante. Like that's kind of like (laughs) in The Fortunate Daughter. Do you remember the name of it? Fortunate Daughter or something like that. Anyway, you have to be that level to pull it off. So she, it's... It's not just about maternal ambivalence, but that's certainly a theme that runs through it. Uh, Can you just, like, for anyone who hasn't heard the term maternal ambivalence before, does that mean, like, more than the sum of its parts? Well, not the way that I use it. The way that I use it is just, like, exactly what it means when you are a mum and... um, Not sure how you feel about it. Not sure how you feel about it. The kid isn't the centre of your world. It's not, like, an overwhelming, all-encompassing love. Sometimes you don't like being a mother. It doesn't mean that you don't like being a mother at all, but it's more the feelings that you can have of not liking being a mother or not feeling that invested in your child at times is how I would yeah. describe it. Or And also at times caring more about yourself than you do about your kid, which obviously in this culture can be... Feel, taboo. Yeah, it's feel taboo. Too, yeah. And in this book, there's also so many other factors that play into why these, not all these women, but some of these women feel that way at different times. But it's also just beautifully, beautifully written, things beautifully described. Like she's such a gifted writer and it was such a pleasure to read and it's coming out this month. So I'll obviously put it in the show notes. What's it called again? Sorry. Thank you for having me, which is also very funny. That is funny. Did I talk about this on the show? I can't remember. I was at the launch of the Joan imprint at Sydney Writers Festival last year and I remember really clearly having big goosebumps and feeling like I was witnessing something special happen. Well, the books that they've published so far, I think this is yeah. the second book, is it? Third. Isn't it? Third. No, because they had Maddie Godfrey's poetry collection. Which is amazing and I've yeah. also got. And then they did ev- Eventually Everything Connects, um, which is oh, the graphic novel right. by Sarah Firth. Frith? Firth, sorry. And then now it's this one. I think this is their third. And it is exciting. Look how different all those books are, especially in the literature landscape like these are books that you take a risk on like poetry is not usually something that sells very well short stories also famously in this industry people don't really not really touch them but they it's don't difficult sell. it's yeah they don't I can sell tell you, they don't yeah, sell they don't sell that's what i love about the joan books like you said they're really different they are different from what is being sold in the market generally but they're also really different from each other yeah. i love that and each doing really exciting things and uh, so far, such talented, talented writers. Yeah. Like you can see this has been very careful work done in selection and editing. Yep. Amazing. Yep. Anyway, I think that this book, you know, I think it could take off in a surprising way. It's just so good. I think it could be a real word of mouth hit. Mm. So get on it, everyone. And I think I saw the front cover and I'm pretty sure I'm not a front cover blurb on it. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to ask you a cheeky question. I don't know if I've asked you this before. Have you ever given a blurb that you didn't like fully believe in? No. I just say because I I have no qualms saying to a publicist because it's always a publicist that's asking you for it. Um. So I have no qualms saying or chasing it up, saying to a publicist, sorry, I didn't get to it. Mm. And I can be a bit non-committal on my when I accept anyway. Like I think when I say yeah, I'll blow, but I usually say yes. I'll take a look and see if I've got time to read it. Yeah. Is how I usually frame it. Why have you done a dishonest blurb? Once, <gasps> once, and I have blurbed a fuck ton of books. Why were you dishonest in your blurb? Because all you have is your word. <laughs> I know, and it haunts me. And I remember like hitting send on the email and being like, I'm never doing that again. But the reason I did it was because, and I still believe this, it was a mistake for them to ask me to blurb it. I was not the intended audience for that book. And what I do believe is that the intended audience for that book would love it. I think that's very honest. That's fair enough to do a blurb that you don't completely believe if if that, you know why yep. you didn't connect with it. But I also just think, like this was years ago now, but I just then I, I just felt really frustrated and it made that incident actually made me be a lot more careful like what you just said about whether I say yes I'll blurb it or yes I'll take a look because it was I was not the right person to ask for that and if someone saw my name on the cover of it I think they would get a wrong impression of what that book does oh you know really? like it just this was a couple of years ago before anyone knew that I had a fiction book coming out or what like yeah I bought your book because of the blurb yeah, oh, because the still, Ghana. Yeah, I yeah. still remember being in Better Red Than Dead and picking it up and seeing Helen Garner because she doesn't blurb a lot. No, she doesn't. And that's why I bought it. It's when a blurb works. When my publisher showed me the draft covers for Eggshell Skull and there were six options and we went with the one that I chose, they had a lorem ipsum by Helen Garner on the front 
And I was like, that is, and we had no idea. This was well before we got the Ghana endorsement. And I was like, that's so mean. Like what a tease putting a like Helen Ghana, Lorem Ipsum placeholder endorsement on the front cover. And then we fucking got one. And it was so And you exciting. didn't think, wait, 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 wait. What about? Brandy Jabbar. <laughs> <laughs> she hasn't published any books at this point. And she's like. Just a random 20-something working at The Guardian, but why not? Why not? <laughs> Let's shoot for the stars. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, well, the book I read, which is so fucking good, it's called If an Egyptian Cannot Speak English by an author called Nua Naga. Um, Nua is based in Alexandria slash Cairo. I found two different bios for her, but born in Philadelphia, raised in Dubai, studied in Toronto, and now lives and works at the American University in Cairo. What a lot of really different places. Yes. Like from Dubai to Toronto. And the reason I mention them all is because that is super relevant to this book. So the basics, alternating perspectives between a man and a woman takes place in the, not the immediate aftermath of the Arab Spring. Like it's not that you know, all the foreigners have just left. It's sort of six years after that, like medium term aftermath. So we're looking at sort of 2016, 2017, I would guess. It's not like kind of really explicitly stated. The male character is from, and we don't get their names, so I'm just going to say the man and the woman. The man is from a very small town in Egypt, um, very, very rough start in life. But during the Arab Spring, he's makes good money selling his photos. He's a photographer selling photos to like CNN, BBC, Reuters. The way we understand the Arab Spring and that uprising through this man's perspective is so beautiful and so heartbreaking and illuminating. Like he talks about that feeling of kind of having hope for something better for your country and then how like heartbroken when it didn't sort of work. Yeah, it was, it's, extraordinary writing. And the woman character, so she, the woman character in the book has Egyptian parents, but she was born and sort of raised in New York and barely kind of speaks some passable Arabic and has returned, sort of quote unquote returned. She's not returning there. She's like going for the first time properly to Egypt. And like her, one of her family members basically teases her by saying, oh, you like returning to your roots. It's very, very self-aware because the woman character is a self-admitted, like excruciatingly annoying social justice warrior. And you find out towards the end that one of the reasons she's kind of quit her life in New York was because she had made so much of her personality and her identity kind of in that whipped up frenzy of kind of Twitter cancel culture calling out shit and then, you know, like something from her past on the internet got called out and the snake kind of ate its own tail. So anyway, her dad in New York is a dentist and she's like pretty well off in New York, which means in Cairo she's like wealth, you know, that just that the disparity in relative wealth there. So the Egyptian man who doesn't speak any English and the sort of New York Egyptian woman who barely speaks Arabic get together. And it's just this like combustion of wrong place, wrong time. It gets violent, it gets messy and really, really complicated. And in the f- it's split into parts. We're almost finished, sorry, but this it's just so good I need to explain it. It's split into parts. The first part There are not even any paragraphs. Each alternating chapter begins with this kind of poetic slash rhetorical question. I circled at least 30 or 40 words that are things that are specific to Egypt that I did not understand, which is fine, um, but like very much felt that I was reading something that was not going out of its way to like cater to a kind of outsider perspective. But then you get to part two when a huge power shift has happened between the relationship of the man and the woman and suddenly these like poetic rhetorical questions have disappeared and we get these like anthropological pleasantly explanatory footnotes about anything we might not understand about Egyptian life. Part three, very small, an MFA program writing like critical feedback workshop in which 
a memoir written by a writer called Noor is being dissected by her classmates. Oh, my God. It is extraordinary. This book. That sounds like an incredibly difficult thing to pull off because it sounds like it could also be a bit punishing. And it like was making not. All, making all these. I'm like, right, yep, yep, yep. I see the point you're making. Okay. But, like, I can mm. see from your face that you're skeptical. If somebody explained all that to me before I went in, I would have been skeptical as well. No, but I'm not I skeptical. Fucking... I believe it's brilliant, but I'm saying I believe she's pulled it off, but the way you've described what yeah. she's pulled off is really, really difficult because when you're trying to do all those things, you can just come across as a punish. Yeah, and it's not. It's just so good. And I think one of the reasons it works so well is like the example I gave, right, where we hear about what it was like for a young Egyptian man to be in the uprising and then to live through it and be an intrinsic part of it. The specificity of the sort of storytelling about the emotional roller coaster that that character went on that is one of a ton of different examples of things that just gave this such an incredibly embodied and tactile and real and high stakes feeling that the risk that it would feel you know like a high school english assignment was just completely gone she just fucking hits it out of the fucking park this is one of the best books i've ever read and it's so short yes like the way you're i can see that it's quite a slim novel and the way you're talking would make me think that it's really long but she's pulled all that off in what 200 pages it's so good and like that how how that character yes less than 200 pages it's like 180 maybe you read it in, in an evening yeah and and how i mentioned that thing about the new york character kind of like being this annoying social justice warrior like there are parts in here that are so darkly funny not many maybe half a dozen but there is a level of just very worldly kind of self-awareness of how the language of cultural capital that exists in a place like new york in general and then in particular in something like an mfa program just completely crumbles under pressure when you are actually in a place like Cairo with someone who's sort of two weeks away from being a rough sleeper. It just, it's exquisite. It's fantastic. I'm going to read. I'm going to take that copy if I can. No, I have to take it to Egypt, but. (laughs) Why? You've already read it. (laughs) (laughs) Because on my trips we do book clubs. Oh, of course. I'm so excited. The other thing I did this week was finish a season of a television show basically within a week. Wow. Which is very rare for me. Like I do like TV, but I don't watch it every night. But Maddie and I loved this show so much that we watched it, I think it mean about a week, and each episode was like 45 minutes to an hour long. It is so good. What is it? Fargo season four. <gasps> I listened to the Slate Culture Gab Fest episode about this and I'm so excited. Okay, lay it on me. It is so Fantastic. Sam is like almost <laughs> leapt out of his chair in agreement. I liked the first season. So Fargo is a television show where each season it is its own story. What do you call it? Contained, like self-contained? Self-contained. There's some word for it oh. where they um every season is different. I forget what it is though. Anyway, every season is its own world. The characters, it's not like following the same characters over four seasons. It basically starts a fresh every season. And what it has in common is that it's set in Fargo in Minnesota. So some of the characters have really annoying accents. (laughs) And usually there's like police involved and something to be solved. And it's different women each time, but like one police woman in the town of Fargo, because it's based off the Coen Brothers movie, which I saw years ago when I was trying to impress Maddie. <laughs> and I did and I did enjoy, but I liked the first se- I did enjoy the first season, but I dropped out of the second season. And it was a show that I was like, oh yeah, it's good. And then I kind of but dropped off. I'm, you know, I'm not that interested. Anyway, enough people were talking about season four that to the absolute thrill and joy of Maddie Q, I suggested that we watch it. And it is phenomenal. It is so gripping. And also usually something, and this isn't a spoiler, usually something where domestic violence or assault against women or any kind of, um, even any kind of violence is the engine of a story I don't love. Like I don't think that it, I never find it entertaining. And I know, you know, TV and movies don't always have to be entertaining, but I like a bit of escapism when I'm watching television. But the way that it's the engine of this story is so unique so well done. 
It's just phenomenal TV. John Hamm is the villain and he is amazing. The cast is stacked. And Juno Temple, for anyone, did you ever see any Ted Lasso? No. So, you know, from your no, I can tell you no, it's like a fluffy television show. It was like, I didn't mind the first season and thought that it was like quite funny and warm and I enjoyed it and a bit quirky. She was a character in that, which is like the hot girlfriend who comes good. Like she's a phenomenal actress. Oh, my God. She's like the star of this. Her acting is incredible. You're gripped from the first scene and then the story kind of, plays out over I think about nine or ten episodes and I loved every single episode, loved the cast, loved the story, thought it was totally original, was gripped. And it's on SBS On Demand, so free. I love SBS On Demand. I love SBS On Demand except for the completely insane places they choose to insert ads. (laughs) (laughs) And actually now that I say that, like so many ads. And just at the weirdest Weirdest point. (laughs) But it's and so John Hamm is in it. Also Jennifer Jennifer Jason Lee is so amazing in it as like the kind of evil mother-in-law. Also, everyone in this show is a Republican. And I really liked watching a television show where everyone is a Republican, but like also completely different from each other, like completely covers like the the spectrum of Republicans in America at the moment. Yeah, it's like is Minnesota probably just a really can be a really conservative, state. yeah, really yeah. conservative place. Yeah. And it's um, got a lovely husband, so we do have a little bit of yeah, the boys. <laughs> was <laughs> a it, lot of evil men though? A lot of evil men. Was it season one of Fargo where Kirsten Dunst played that woman who was trying to self actualize? Two. That's the oh, season I dropped out on. I loved that. Yeah, oh. I need to. But after watching season four, I was thinking I need. Oh, season five. Sorry, season five. It's the latest season, season five. But after watching this season, I did think I have to go back to season two and give it another go because I knew it was really good, but I just, I think, wasn't in the mood or whatever. Mm. But, yeah, it's brilliant. I loved it and Mm. loved the way it was done. Also, and this isn't a spoiler, there was, like, one moment that was made in a lab for me where (laughs) (laughs) one of the very few good men in it, it's revealed that he's a good man because he had six sisters. And You're I like, like, I knew it. I fucking uh, yeah, knew it. Yeah. <laughs> and in which I don't know if I've actually said it publicly on the podcast before, but most people who know me know my big theory that, like, um, if you find a good or great man, they usually have an older sister. Yeah. At yeah. least. At and, least. Or, or many. Or just, like, you could tell, I think you can tell often when you meet a dude if he's not got a sister. Yes. Well, we've had this conversation yeah. so much. And then remember Sam revealed he had a sister yeah, and we, we were, were like, both like, knew it. Knew it. it. <laughs> Yeah. So that was, you know, it's a completely innocuous moment in the grand scheme of things in the show. But I was like, you know, jumping up the couch. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Loved it. Great. Tell me about this tweet you sent me that you want to talk about. I loved it. Loved reading the thread, the huge yeah, yeah, it, thread that we, it led I'll to. I'll post the tweet in the show notes so people can go and – because it's not about the actual tweet. It's about the um, responses, which is what I wanted to discuss actually a bit about it. So the tweet was 30-plus folks – I hate the word folks. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those words that always just like grinds my gears. 30-plus folks – what is your best piece of professional advice? I thought it was a great way to frame the question because it wasn't, you know, asking people specifically over 30 what their pe- best professional advice is was a great move, I thought. The answers ran the whole gamut of like you, here's how you can work hard to get ahead all the way to the other side of like the system is broken, don't try to ex- yes. excel within it. You like need to find a way to burn it down. Like there was, there was a spectrum. Which I really enjoyed all those responses. Before I pick out the two responses I wanted to discuss with you though, I wanted to ask what is your best professional advice for 30 plus folks? Wait, hang on. Is it for people over 30 or is it now that we're over no, 30? No, it's now that we're over yeah, 30. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. asking people over 30 what's your best professional advice. Yep, yep. I know it's like, okay, like there are two parts. Okay, three, part, and then I know your adv- advice is going to boil down to be insane. <laughs> no. <laughs> the first part, which is like easy for me to say because I've been self-employed for a long time now, but for people who have actual sort of normal jobs, your work will never love you back. I'm watching and I, the, the reason I thought of this was because the advice specifically asked people over 30. And in 
my mid to late 20s, I watched as a lot of friends who I met at law school and who went on to have a legal career and worked so hard for the whole of their 20s, just absolutely busting their guts for these law firms in particular, only to find that, you know, and and, and over that time would have made so many hundreds of thousands of dollars for the law firms and just coming to this realisation towards their late 20s and into their early 30s that those law firms don't give a fuck about them and they will like churn them and burn them as soon as they have the opportunity because there will be more and plenty young and hungry people to take their place. And so specifically as someone who's now on the other side of 30, your work will like your, not your work because my work, I feel like my work loves me back, but like your company will never love you back. Don't give to your company with the expectation that you will get kindness and loyalty in return. I think it's good advice to say um, don't give to your company expecting kindness or loyalty in return. But sometimes I can see that kind of advice turned around to, so just log on, do like do your job and then log off again and don't put in extra effort. Where I think that at times for specific people, it does pay off to put in the extra effort and work hard, but you just have to be clear yes. about what you want out of it. But there's also, there's a great Tony Morrison quote. Um, I thought you were going to say Tony Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> or to, there's which a, of these two the, spirit guides? There's Tony a, the, yeah, to, Tony Robert, there's a great Tony Abbott quote. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, while you look for it, this was my second thing, which is like super relevant. If you don't know what you want, you're never going to get it. Which is so counter to my experience in my career. Are you serious? But I think it's still good advice. Like yeah. that's the thing. There is just there is not so one much, piece yeah. of correct advice. But I think it's great advice to tell people to be clear about like if what you, they want. Some people like feel like they're sort of floating or they're not rewarded or whatever. And it's like if you cannot articulate for yourself the goal that you want to be working towards, how can you expect to move forwards towards something that you prefer? I'll tell you how. <laughs> With these three easy steps. <laughs> uh, well, the Tony Morrison quote was, and I, this really resonates, one, whatever the work is, do it well, not for the boss but for yourself. Mm. Two, you make the job, it doesn't make you. Three, your real life is with us, your family. Four, you are not the work you do, you are the person you are. And I think particularly in the industries that you and I are in, it, like we do different types of work, in the same industry it's a really important Thing to remember, you are not the work you do, you are the person you are. But which I think is also a summing up of like your job isn't going to love you, your work is, your company isn't going to love you back. But when not being able to articulate for yourself what you want, I think is actually a fine thing in your 20s. I did not have any ambition to be a journalist when I was a teenager. And what happened for me was that, and what my advice for people is, if you were going to take an opportunity that comes your way, grab it with both hands. And it's okay not to know where you want to end up with it or where it's going to take you. But if you are feeling rewarded, working hard, enjoying the work, then it's fine to take just take every opportunity. Right, I'm going to call you out here because I think you've always known what you've wanted to do and that's to have a sick one. To have a sick one, yeah. <laughs> I, so I got to offer a job and I was like, am I going to have a, a sick, sick one? one? And I knew I'm going to have a sick one doing journalism. Well, <laughs> there have been a lot of not sick ones. But the way that like I, both of these approaches are good approaches you, and, I, and I love that this is one of the ways that you and I are so different. You were so strategic. And I was just talking about you the other day, actually, to someone who was asking me what you're like, IRL. Is it worth the VIP ticket in Brisbane? Yeah, is it worth <laughs> Should I pay? Your mum was asking me the other day, should I pay <laughs> for the Q&A? And I said, I've never met anyone like her in how strategic she is. She always has a plan. She knows what she wants. She works out a way to it. And I just have never met, maybe because I've hung out with a lot of journalists and maybe they're not particularly strategic people. <laughs> maybe it's because I've been hanging out with Rick. <laughs> and as I've never met anyone like her who just is like, this is what I want, how am I going to get there, and then just goes and does it. And it's a quality I admire hugely. I really do admire having the five-year goals, the 10-year goals within reason because I think you do your goals within reason. Mm. But for me, you know, I 
walked into school to pick up my brothers and sisters when I'd finished my year 12 exams back when I got my license and was handed a roster from my father about what my pick up and drop off times were now for four other people. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck. And and that's another story. Anyway, I walked into school and a lady at the office said, oh, uh, Mr. Crooks, the principal, has left this application out for you. He thought you might be interested. And it was for a scholarship cadetship at Bond University. I had not applied for any communications degrees. I had not applied for any journalism degrees, nothing. Like those were none of the things I'd applied for. I'd actually applied for and got a scholarship to University of Sydney studying economics. <laughs> and I didn't know what I wanted to do with that. I just thought economics was could there could be a sick one in economics. <laughs> anyway, I feel I'm like, oh what you know what I've got to do? Fill out that application got through this big interview process and ended up getting offered the cadetship. And I just thought, well, what an amazing opportunity. Um, Everyone in my year at school thought it was a massive joke that I was moving to the Gold Coast because I'd been harping on for years about how I was going to Sydney. (laughs) I'm out of this hellhole. I was Hamish, but in reverse. (laughs) I'm out of this hellhole. See you later, suckers. And I'm never coming back. Oh, I came back so quick. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so but I was like, what an opportunity. And I just took it with both hands, went to it. I did love the work, but while I was there working as a – Junior reporter at the Gold Coast Bulletin, I did not think, what do I want to do next? Yeah, but then that guy then, told you yeah, not to say no to that job. To the job at Brisbane yeah. Times. And then at Brisbane Times, a job at The Guardian came up and I just kept applying. And every time I got an opportunity, I was never thinking, you know, I didn't realise when I got the job at The Guardian, it never entered my brain, oh, The Guardian might fail. And it absolutely could have failed. But it just wasn't the way I thought. Like I wasn't strategic at all. It was a huge risk coming into the market the way that it did and only had enough money for five years. You might be too flattered to answer this directly, but do you not think that, like, you are so, so smart and you are so savvy. You got, like, the scholarship and then you got this better job and then you got this even better job. Like, what what about people who aren't as smart and savvy as you? Maybe they have to plan more. Yeah, of course. But I think you're super smart for planning and that you plan in a way that it's just the way that people's different brains work. Yeah. And so yours, work, our brains just work in completely different ways, which we've made which work is why for both of us. Hair comes out so yeah. differently. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't think, I definitely don't think I'm smarter than you, but, or more savvy than you, but it's just the, the different approaches we've had. But also, I think you'd be similar in taking every opportunity that you've yeah. had and grabbing it with both hands. So, my big advice for my professional advice is, it's okay not to have a plan, but every opportunity you get, don't dwell on the, oh, is this good advice? Mm, It's just worked out well for me. (laughs) It's also, it's also been my approach to relationships where I'm like, I never thought that it wouldn't work out. (laughs) (laughs) Everything just always works out, but it's good. Like I definitely have a lot more fear and anxiety now in my thirties because I know that things can go wrong, but it's also- The stakes are higher. Yeah, and the stakes are higher, but it's definitely a big advantage you have in your early twenties where like if you- did fail, like if the Guardian did go bust, I would have been fine. Yeah. I would have found another job. I would have gone to something else. If I didn't get the scholarship, the job at Gold Coast Bulletin, I would have been fine. I would have gone and studied politics at Sydney Uni or something. I really like this phrase you've used, like grab it with both hands, because I remember when it was really sort of 2020 deep in lockdowns, and that was when I did a huge deep dive and just searched the name Zadie Smith in Spotify's search bar and listened to every single recording that was available. And in one of them, someone from the audience which is such a fucking wild card, asked, like in the audience Q&A at the end, asked her, basically, I'm having trouble deciding whether or not I want kids. Do you have any advice? And Zadie Smith's answer was essentially, whatever you choose, do it to the hilt. Great advice. And I just remember thinking, yes, like – don't pussyfoot around. Yeah. Like whatever you, whatever the opportunity is, whatever the call you've made, fucking go hard. Actually, I think that's exactly my approach yeah. with everything and with having kids as well. I've never looked back. And I think it's also why I, I am such a happy parent because I don't dwell on, oh, maybe I shouldn't have or how would it have been different if I didn't have them? Mm. You just like go, well, this is my decision. We're balls in. All you know balls what I in. think you and I have in common because, like, you articulate all the ways we're really different. I think what we have in common is decisiveness. Yes, like Anna Winter. <laughs> <laughs> One of the many ways we're both like Anna Winter. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a big thing. Yeah, I, totally. Like, yeah. It's a really important trait. Some of the um, other answers to that tweet that I was just going to 
read out and get your response to, although like maybe now we've already covered it, was, oh, yeah, what did you think of this one? Truly do not worry that much about work when you're under 25. Party as hard as you physically can. You'll have the rest of your life to work hard, but under a decade of your body feeling invincible. I agree with that. I don't. A bit. Oh, what? <laughs> yeah, it's because what? Because I didn't party and you did. <laughs> I did both. Do both. Yeah, do both. Actually, yeah. No, if you if you can, do both. I well, I think don't. I think saying not worry when you're under twenty five. That can be fine and work out for a lot of people, but it's never advice that I would give someone because if I didn't grab my opportunities at 18, 20, 23 and work really hard, I wouldn't be where I am now. That's true. I think don't worry is the wrong word. Don't worry. Yeah. I think it's okay not to know at 25 or to have failed at something and be trying something different. And also, you know, changing careers at 30. I know a woman who was a successful journalist and switched careers at 30 and she's now a um, psychiatrist. Yeah. And that's so much study and so much work and you think, oh, it's too late to change now, but no, no. it's not too late. Yeah. But, I, yeah, I think the don't worry bit is what I didn't like. Don't worry that much about work. No, I, if you have opportunities, you need to take them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. And But also, under a decade of your body feeling invincible, my body still feels great. I hate it when people in their 30s carry on like they're decomposing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like in the last three years, I have noticed a significant shift in my body's ability to bounce back. Yeah, but you're not you're not geriatric yet, Brie. No, but I just <laughs> like I remember thinking to myself uh, for a few different things. Oh, I see. Like the, starting to slow down. Yeah, you're yeah. Only, it's only going to get worse. <laughs> <laughs> Complain when you're eighty about how your body doesn't feel invincible. The other one I saw that I really liked was from Thomas Violence. They're way easier on your body but office jobs are worse for your brain than CTE, which is concussions, brain injury from concussions. <laughs> I actually don't mind that take. What do you think? Oh, man. This is, but this comes back, maybe this is like too long and boring an answer, but this comes back to what these days you actually consider to be working class. And it's like people who can't choose but to have a job that degrades their body rapidly over time. Yeah, but you can still do physical jobs and earn good money. Tradies are on six figures, babe. Oh, no, tradies <laughs> are not. That's, yeah, tradies are not working. It's been a very, very long yeah. time no, since I, tradies I don't think that that, and this is a guy who doesn't have an office job. Right. Yeah, I oh. know he doesn't have an office job. Oh. Like, he, he, this is the path that he's oh, chosen. Okay. And he's well, this, okay, so and he's saying, And he's saying it was worse to work an office job, job. and it was worse for his brain, brain than, like, it may seem easy and, like, you're, like, earning easy money, but actually, and I agree with this. It's atrophying. How, yeah, how mind-numbing. Some office jobs could be. It is way better to just be a tra- well, a tradie earns good money. You know, be a nurse, be a tradie, be some or be something out when you're outside or like Teacher. not staring at Love a screen teachers. for eight and a half hours a day. Yeah, actually, I um the the small amount of time I did on like a like say for example a clerkship at a law firm, I remember by the end of even four weeks, I was like, get me the. F- yeah. Like, if I stay here, I will die. I do think that we should give pensions to anyone who works a physical job at, like, age 50, though. Yeah, they hard, should, hard They should not be working till age 67 100%. jobs. Yeah, 100%. Well, the big news of the week that I'm excited for us to talk about, stage three tax cuts, and the question you posed, I think, perfectly, when is it okay for a politician change their When is it okay, okay for, for a politician to break a promise? Break a promise. I was going to say change their mind. No, you can tell to... which one of us writes headlines. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so bad at that shit. Uh... When it, I think it's a really so a really interesting question in the context of parliaments coming back this week. So this is going to be the thing that dominates the news for the week will be Albo defending his changes to the stage 3 tax cuts. And the opposition will be hammering him as a liar and having broken his promise. Brie, we won't go into like the nitty gritty, obviously, of the details about all the tax changes, because I think the more interesting question is when is it okay to break a promise? But just so that everyone's across it, the stage three tax cut changes mean that those earning between $50,000 and $130,000 will get the biggest benefit now. Those earning above $150,000 will see a smaller tax cut, but will still get a tax cut. And those earning less than $45,000 were not set to get a tax cut and they now will. So more people on lower income are getting tax cuts now where previously people earning over $180,000 a year 
we're essentially getting roughly a $10,000 tax cut, $10,000. And they're still getting about four and a half grand tax cut yeah. now. Everyone gets a tax cut. It's just that the super rich people get a slightly less yes. of a tax cut. But it's been – but. Before the election, Albo said there would not be any changes to stage three tax cuts. So I don't really think there is a debate about whether he broke a promise. Yes, he's breaking a promise, but is it okay? Yes. What do you think? Hard, yes, it's okay. I mean, it's difficult to separate my feelings about him breaking a promise from my belief that this is better policy. But we are currently living through a cost of living crisis. It's not a cost of living issue. Like people's families and budgets are in crisis. It would be, I think, weak and shit leadership to not respond to such a significant change in circumstance. And I think that there's going to be a lot of sort of a lot of talk about this for a week or two. And then I think that Albanese is going to come out of this way stronger than before. I think the majority of people will be on board with this. So this is what I'm really interested to see how it will play out as a scare campaign, because campaigning on a politician lying or breaking a promise, I think is very effective in 2024. Like I think 10 years ago, it would have been harder to campaign against him for breaking a promise, but with like so much distrust in politicians at the moment and so and so much trust broken over the past few years, I think that there's less bandwidth for people to accept it. You know, he broke a promise on for good reasons and it's good policy. And I think there's some people, not all people, but some people out there who would just say, another politician lied, another politician lied. But... Very difficult scare campaign to pull off when everybody is getting money. Yeah. And, you know, when there was a scare campaign on the carbon tax, that can be argued as not a like a change of circumstances that necessitated it and also good policy. So if you're going to break a promise, worth breaking. But the scare campaign was so effective because people don't really know what a carbon tax was. Mm. It's hard to articulate. It was easy to make it quite messy. And also it is a new tax. At the end of the, end of the day, it's a new tax. So it could be campaigned on. Prices are going to go up, even if some of those things were ridiculous. And even there was compensation in the package. So many, many people, if not the majority of people, would not have been worse off under it. But very hard to explain, explain very hard for people to understand campaigning on this using the same strategy that you use on carbon tax, I think is way more difficult because people, one, easy to understand, tax cuts. Yep. I getting more money. (laughs) (laughs) And I was speaking to a senior man who used to work in the press gallery and doesn't anymore, and he said to me, I think Bob Hawke could have pulled this off. I don't know if Albo can pull off this cell. I tend to, I I agree with that sentiment, but I think that Additional factor here is that if there is going to be a scare campaign led about Albanese breaking a promise, the fact that we're not, we haven't mentioned yet, is that it's Peter Dutton leading that scare campaign and his approval rating is like down in the fucking dumps. Yeah, they don't have a very. He's not, like, he's not, Albanese is not getting fired at from like someone that people like and trust, which makes a huge difference. Absolutely. And also and another thing that I thought of when I'm and watching this begin to play out is I do think it's slightly risky for the Liberals to try to brand Albo the liar yep. and someone who's untrustworthy when their previous leader was Scott Morrison, yep. who voters very – like I think um, it's still so fresh in people's memory that when you say untrustworthy – or deceitful, it still brings into voters' minds Scott Morrison. Yeah. They're reminded, oh, the last guy, like the last liberal. That's not, you know, a fact of polling or based on any hard evidence. That's just a vibe right. that I have and like a thought that I had watching it play out. Yeah. And but and also there's a role of the media in this as well because it's not like he campaigned on keeping the stage three tax cuts. It's because he kept being asked by journalists over and over again, are you going to scrap them? Which is a legitimate question. Yeah. But I think also does play into this form of journalism rule, which I hate and which I think does a big disservice to our industry, which is rule in, rule out questions. Mm. And when Albo was up at the press club, a question that really annoyed me was someone saying, can you rule out changes to negative gearing? Why? Like, 
he has to be able to govern. The government has to be able to govern. They have to be able to come up with reforms during their term. This is not on the table at all. And you're, it's a gotcha question where you're asking him to rule in or rule out something that no one's discussing yet, but maybe if it did come up, you'd go back and go, well, you said that you weren't going to do it. Well, I don't really think that's a fair question to ask when it's not on the table and hasn't been discussed as an issue. Yeah. And so I think there is an element of like the media's role in all of this as well. And it wasn't even it. Labor policy. Like you said, like he, he had to answer questions in like the affirmative or the negative about whether they would keep or scrap these, but it wasn't their idea. You know, it wasn't something it, they put on it, their banner. It was Scott Morrison's idea when he was treasurer for Turnbull. It was then passed by Scott Morrison as prime minister. The package changed. <laughs> oh, whose idea is this? This is a great yeah, idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, Labor and Greens as well and other independents, you know, demanded changes to it. It was passed in a very – the package was changed a lot before it was passed and they did oppose it initially. So, it again, yeah, another element. It's not like it's a core promise. But how much does the average voter think about all of those nuances as well is the real question. Yeah. That's where I think it, the big factor comes in, that if Peter Dutton is the one saying he broke a promise, he's a bad guy, it makes a difference that Peter Dutton's approval rating is currently like below 20%. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Like no one's, yeah. Anyway, we are not making, well, I'm not making any big calls because I learned my lesson covering <laughs> yeah. the Queensland election many years ago uh, when Campbell Newman was going to his second election with the biggest majority Queensland had ever seen. And I got asked on camera who's going to win, and I said it's mathematically impossible for Anastasia Palaszczuk to win, even though he's going to run a terrible campaign and there's going to be a lot of a big huge swing against him. He will still be premier. And my colleague at the time, and still my colleague now, Daniel Hurst, said I never make calls like that on camera. That's not something for us to do, and like you're going to eventually end up with egg on your face. <laughs> Well, I learnt my lesson, so I won't be making any calls. Longest on serving yeah. premier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anastasia Palaszczuk. Premier, two days later, I was at the press conference, premier Anastasia Palaszczuk. <laughs> um, but it will be interesting to watch and I think it is a good question to percolate on and for us to ask our, ourselves as like journalists and people. Mm where trust is with the public and our politicians. Yeah. Anyway, what are you doing this week? Flying, Flying to, to Egypt. Egypt. <laughs> yeah. What about you? Going to the Hollywood Hotel. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to Egypt, I'm going to the Hollywood Hotel in Surrey Hills. Love it. Great. <laughs> it's going to be a, gr- a great fun week. And Finn. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Cool Story with Brie and Bridie, where we talk about our stories, the best stories, and the biggest stories of the week. Our producer is Sam Devonport, and we record on Gadigal Land. Sovereignty was never ceded. You can find us on Instagram where we love to hear from you and where we post quite a lot of behind-the-scenes content. It's at Cool Story, Brie Bridie. And please leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast. We love to read them and we love it when they come through. Want to hear a cool story? Get it wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>